This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby returns from vacation on Tuesday. We're beginning to hear some of the stories of the people who fled Ukraine and what they've gone through to get out. Katya Savchuk is an American journalist who helped get her 94-year-old grandmother and her disabled father out of the capital of Kiev. Katya is on the line from San Francisco with us now. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Jane. Thank you so much for having me. Katya, before we hear the stories, tell us about your grandmother and your dad. A little bit about sure. them so we know who we're yeah. talking about. <laughs> um, my my grandmother is uh, 94 years old. Her name is uh, Zoya Sinonovna. Um, she was born in Kharkov in northeastern um, uh, Ukraine. She survived the Holocaust. Both of her parents were killed. Um, her, her father was killed. Her mom died during that time. Uh, she made it just hiding in, in bomb shelters and um, also uh, recently survived COVID in her 90s. Wow. Um, so has definitely life. been through a lot. Yeah. Um, my father um, used to work for the government in Ukraine. He's 70 um, and he has a disability um, due to a car accident um, with his eye and his neck. So he's not able to drive. Uh, so, of course, when, uh, you know, news of the invasion hit, I was very worried for them. They live uh, just in a building in central uh, Kiev. And have you lived in Ukraine as well? I was born in Kiev myself, and I emigrated uh, in 1989 as a, a refugee uh, from the Soviet Union uh, um, to San Francisco. I've been back just um, a couple of times, and it's a beautiful city. It is. I've been there as well. Mm-hmm. My husband is Ukrainian-Canadian. Uh, it, oh, I see. Yeah, the heritage is just, uh, there are a lot of Ukrainian-Canadians. It's us being here in Canada, having the, the second largest diaspora of Ukrainians uh, next to Russia, and certainly right. many, many in the U.S. as well. So tell mm-hmm. us about the story. What happened once uh, the war began? Mm-hmm. Well, my dad, um, unfortunately, uh, didn't, believe that the invasion would happen like so many others. And so he was caught off guard. They didn't have a lot stocked up, um, you know, as missiles started um, falling, you know, gunfire in the streets, explosions, some hitting residential buildings, um, started getting really concerned and checking in on them. Uh, my grandmother wasn't able to make it to a bomb shelter. She can't really walk. You couldn't carry her. So they were just sort of sitting there with the lights off, uh, you know, at night to avoid being being seen uh, by the aircraft. Um, he started standing in line four or five hours every day to get, you know, food and medicine, and the shelves were getting emptier and emptier. Um, so was getting uh, very concerned about them. But he, my dad basically said, I just don't know what to do. I have no idea how we can get out. Um, there, you know, sh- there we see the images of refugees at the border just waiting for hours, days, you know, in the freezing cold that are just heartbreaking. Right. Um, and that was difficult for anybody, but just not an option for them at all. Uh, so I ended up going on Twitter, just thinking, what can I do? And just putting it out there that 
you know, my grandmother, the Holocaust survivor, they just don't know how to get out. Does anybody have any ideas? You know, my dad can't drive. Um, and I was just amazed um, by the response. Just, uh, you know, I think tens of thousands of people shared the post. I got um, probably over 100 replies and, you know, some coming from big organizations that are helping uh, a lot of a lot of folks and, and others just lots, lots of grassroots groups that have organized, you know, people driving in, just re- regular volunteers from, you know, Poland, from Germany. There's some, there's a Canadian medic there, I believe, um, just um, taking upon themselves to get people out, especially people who have, you know, disabilities or elderly. Um, so, and, you know, people offering for flights to host them. So it was just an incredible response. The kindness of strangers, right? Yes, it, you know, restored my my faith in humanity a little bit in this dark time uh, when I had just been, you know, refreshing my the news of, of, of the war itself. So as you get all these offers, uh, what happened after that? Or, uh, you know, uh, offers of assistance or direction or guidance? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a, a lot of the options just just weren't feasible because my grandmother can't get on a bus just in her condition at 94. And uh, just even a regular bus trip is, is very difficult, you know, getting to the train. It was um, a friend's uh, family evacuated. They they stood for 12 hours on the train and, you know, if she couldn't do that. She couldn't even get to the station. So what ended up happening was a German journalist um, that I didn't know just saw who, who's there on the ground in Ukraine, saw the, my tweet and said, you know, he was really moved by it. And uh, he knew um, Vladimir Klitschko, uh, who's a famous boxer. Um, and he who's also the brother of right. the mayor of Kiev, Vitaly Klitschko. So they kind of took it upon themselves to, to rescue them. And um, they, a couple of uh, people in the territorial defense forces, which is the volunteer army that's now formed, um, kind of in, in normal times, it's like a film producer and a businessman. This is just, you know, now they're all geared up for war. Um, but they volunteered to, to drive them. And uh, actually a Toyota dealership volunteered uh, um, or offered them a, a minivan. Um, they got them and escorted them, you know, with Kalashnikovs and, and guns in hand uh, to the Hungarian border. And um, then on onto Germany and there's some there's uh, people from a German company called the Keller Group, a logistics firm that kind of um, took them the rest of the way over the border. Uh, and it's just been, you know, a, a blessing. I don't think there's there's any other way that, that they could have gotten out. And I'm so, so relieved that they're safe. Um, and I'm also just very aware that it's, you know, a one-off solution that just isn't available to so many people, and I've just been hearing heartbreaking stories from from others in similar situations as that's, well. That's amazing. Uh, if you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Katya Savchuk. She's an American journalist. She's telling us the story of her 94-year-old grandmother, her disabled father, and how they got out of the capital of Kiev uh, at the beginning of the war, Vladimir Putin's war against uh, Ukraine. Um, tell us, Katya, in terms of actually getting your grandmother out of her out of her home, her apartment, um, how physically did that work out? Was it very difficult? Um, the the men who were escorting them, who are just very, very kind people, as I mentioned, one of them normally is a film producer and is on the city council. The other, I, 
didn't quite understand. He might be a contractor, I believe, but they were just very kind men. And now, you know, like they, everybody they carried her out, I guess, everything up. Yeah. yeah. So they, they, they walked her, um, uh-huh. just arm. She was able to walk just being propped up by them. Oh, yeah. Nice, and nice. then they, they got her in this, in this minivan. So in Germany, what is their situation now? They are, as we speak, still on their way to their final destination. They they stopped in Hungary and Budapest um, and for the night, and then they drove. And the journey, you know, along the way, it's, it's been pretty hard on my grandmother. It's hours of driving, and um, one point they got a flat tire, and it was just due to the kindness of a, a guy who'd, who'd already really closed up shop. You know, they have a curfew. In, in Ukraine right now, who who was kind enough to fix the tire, started snowing, which made the roads a little more treacherous. So it was quite a journey. But luckily, she I think surprised everybody by by just um, weathering it um, without complaint. And the only thing she asked for, I, I heard uh, from the people escorting her, was she wanted cognac <laughs> because there's at the end because there's a a ban on uh, alcohol sales in, in Ukraine right now because of the war and everybody having, have, having guns. Um, so she did, she wanted that at the end of her journey. Um, oh, so definitely. they're on the way to a, uh, a hotel in, in Heidelberg um, where a, a, a donor is, is going to put them up. But, but what's next is a big question mark. You know, they, they won't have any income and we don't, really know what to do from there. That's the next thing to figure out. Right. What a story. And are you talking with them on the phone, your grandmother and your dad? Yeah, we're just communicating through like online messaging and they've been completely exhausted, um, understandably. And just, you know, I'm, I'm so, you know, as exhausting as it's, as it's been for them, I, you know, a woman wrote to me, um, her own mother was, was, I'm sorry, her grandmother was stuck in a building in where there had been a lot of violence in the last couple of days. She was 84 years old. She was in a building that had been hit by a rocket. She was there with her daughter. They had no electricity. Her phone was dead. Um, and it's just that breaks my heart. I, I tried to connect her with resources, and I actually made a document that's on my Twitter to, compiling the things that people shared with me, you know, so that if others are in the same situation, they might be able to find some help. But the, the demand is obviously so great, you know, and not the man. I don't think the mayor is able to reach out and help every single person, even though we're so grateful. Um, so just, you know, the violence itself is heartbreaking and so many people need help right now. Let people know who want to continue to follow the story, um, your handle on Twitter. Sure. It's at Katia Sav, K-A-T-I-A, S is in Sam, A, V is in Victor. Yeah, because the journey continues. Um, I just want to ask you one more question. Uh, as a former resident of Ukraine, uh, as you said, you fled when you were much younger, for, when it was the Soviet Union. What do you make of what is happening in your country? Mm-hmm. It's really impossible to make anything of it because it's a senseless, it's a senseless war. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very often in tears, you know, like so many people around the world who are Ukrainian and who aren't Ukrainian, just seeing, you know, hospitals being bombed, women cradling newborns underground or sleeping in a metro. You know, we, we were technically refugees. We were fleeing persecution of 
of Jews at the time. You know, now they have a, a Jewish president, and um, it's just um, terribly sad. And it's it's clear that the soldiers that are going there, you, there's lots of videos of prisoners of war online. A lot of them are very young children who were told they were going on training exercises. So it's just a lot of death and destruction and on, on you know, both sides and for absolutely no reason. So I just hope the violence ends soon, and I'm very proud of, of, of Ukraine right now. Well, we really appreciate you spending some time with us here on Zoomer Radio in Toronto, Canada. Um, your story was incredible, and it was, it was nice to have you share it with us. Thank you so much. American journalist Katya Savchuk. Jane for Libby here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. And still to come, among other guests, Zoomer media friend and human rights activist Majid Al-Shafi joins us from Eastern Europe with a firsthand look at what's going on. That's next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Zeev is trying his very best to get a hold of Majid Al-Shafi. He is a human rights advocate, founder of One Free World International, currently in Poland en route to Ukraine. It is very difficult uh, because of the war uh, to get in touch with people, especially when you want to get in touch with people. But Majid is there. He is safe. Uh, in the meantime, though, we have another special guest as we continue our discussion about Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine. Dr. Andriy Zayarnyuk, professor of history at the University of Winnipeg, who teaches about Ukraine, the former Soviet Union and nationalism. He has been a guest here on Fight Back as well in the early days of the war, which was only two weeks ago. Doctor, thanks for spending some time. Hi. I think we talked to you uh, the morning after Vladimir Putin launched his uh, military against Ukraine. Um, since that time, I'm sure you're watching in horror, uh, like all the rest of us. What are your thoughts two weeks in? Um, I mean, it's a humanitarian catastrophe, first of all. The largest since World War II in Europe. There is no doubt about it. It's... Um, about terrible suffering Putin and Russian troops inflicted upon Ukrainians. Um, this is war in all its brutality. We were speaking yesterday with uh, Dr. Elliot Tepper around this time in the program, and he was saying that uh, the focus right now, because things have not evolved the way Vladimir Putin thought that they would in the early days, and that is just to beat the people into submission, um, to just bomb the crap out of them effectively. Um, it, 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 this would be strategy number two, obviously. Oh, I agree. Definitely after his military operation essentially failed, the blitzkrieg, the idea that he could conquer Ukraine in two or three days, um, the Russian military turned this into a campaign of terror and destruction targeting Ukraine's civilians. Uh, and I know that the focus of the world is on refugees from Ukraine to other countries. 
but you should remember that the number of people internally displaced in Ukraine is much, much greater. It's close to 7 million people who are fleeing from the battle zones, leaving their homes, um, losing their livelihood and going to the safer parts of, of Ukraine. So this is also a campaign of dispossession of ethnic cleansing. Russia is just forcing Ukrainians off their land. What is preventing the West and NATO, uh, you know, understanding all of the issues that Vladimir Putin has with Ukraine trying to become more westernized and a more permanent part of Europe? What is preventing the West from stopping, is it just the new? Is it just the nuclear threat? Is that what's stopping the West from from ending this whole thing? Uh, mostly, yes. I think uh, this is the fear of a nuclear war. Um, the fear that Putin would escalate this into the third world war. Um, and yes, the West has no effective strategy of dealing with. Uh, nuclear bully, essentially. And you should also remember that, I mean, there are all kinds of nuclear powers, and Russia is different because of the Soviet arsenal and intercontinental ballistic missiles. So in terms of sheer uh, mass of nuclear weapons, Russia is actually power number one. Its nuclear arsenal is greater than America's. Yes. So does the nuclear bully get to keep doing whatever he wants indefinitely? Is that is that what we're facing here? Uh, so far, it worked. I mean, the invasion of Ukraine didn't begin in February 2022. It started in 2014, and the West did react with sanctions, but its effects were negligible. I mean... The Russian economy actually prospered after 2014, and the West usually had business as usual with with Russia. Even so, it was a you know blatant um, aggression, annexation of territories of a sovereign sovereign country. But Putin did get away with this, so it's emboldened him, and apparently he believed that he would get away with. Uh, this all-out war against Ukraine, too. What does he want ultimately? Does it? Do he wants? Does he want the Soviet Union as it once was? No, it's not about the Soviet Union. Um, he wants a new edition of the Russian Empire, which would be actually more aggressive, more authoritarian than the Russian Empire of the. 19th century, the empires that um, collapsed in 19 in 1917, and he believes that uh, this empire cannot be built without Ukraine. I mean, if you look at his own text, there is a clear ideological justification for this war. He is denying Ukraine's right to exist, um, and he believes that only this. Ukraine and its resources, the new Russian empire will be possible, the new great Russia. I'm speaking with Dr. Andriy Zaryarnyuk, professor of history at the University of Winnipeg. What is it about Ukraine that Putin covets so much? You know, I uh, actually have 
family in Ukraine uh, by marriage. My husband, Ukrainian-Canadian, as many of our listeners know, if you if They've been listening along, um, and one of our cousins there is a university professor, and she studies similar disciplines as yourself, and she says that for Russia, Ukraine is always—Russia is like the man, and Ukraine is the woman who who doesn't want anything to do with the man, and yet he still—he wants her back. He wants to have her under his control. Yes, you can use this allegory of an abusive behavior, um, but it's also about Ukraine's Ukraine's resources. I mean, if you look at Russia's history, Russia did become a great power only after they annexed Ukraine and Ukraine became part of the Russian state. So that started in the middle of the 17th century when they obtained part of Ukraine, and then in the 18th century. So Ukraine helped Russia to join this club of great powers. And ever since, Russia understood that losing Ukraine, it would also lose the status of a great a great power. Um, there is a great historian of Russia, Dominic Levin, and in his book on World War One, he said that, yeah, this was basically Russia's rational um, um in uh, going to World War World War One, it was about Ukraine and whether Ukraine would remain part of the Russian the Russian Empire. But Doctor, can you be a great power if the people in this territory, uh, the country of Ukraine, if if they hate you so much, can you be a great power if your people are not on your side? Uh, that's a problem. Apparently, Putin believed that uh, at least part of uh, Ukrainians would welcome Russian troops. That was his calculation that eventually they would accept it, that you know the great Russian state, Russia's population is much larger than Ukraine's. Uh, once they conquer, they would be able to assimilate um but as you see, he miscalculated, right? Ukrainians are actually remarkably united in their resistance um, to this Russian, Russian aggression. To no surprise, really, to anybody around the world who lives in a democracy, right? Uh, but that also explains this campaign of terror uh, Russia unleashed against Ukraine's civilian population. Um, I mean, it's about dispossession. It's about forcing people... Uh, of their land and uh, just taking territories if they cannot take people or capture their minds. So it's not about, in, in a, at the end of the day, it's about the land. It's not about the people. Well, it's both, it's both for Putin. Um, you know, Ukraine with 40 million would help Russia's declining population. Um, but yeah, it's also about Ukraine's resources as a land and simply the existence of Ukraine as a successful democratic alternative to the Russian authoritarianism. Um, if you look at the kind of soft war, hybrid war against Ukraine that Putin waged for many years, um, the main goal was to prove that Ukraine is essentially a failed state, that, you know, democratic Ukraine cannot be successful, cannot be prosperous. 
um, while authoritarian Russia is doing pretty pretty well. And this is a problem with the West that um, you know buying Russian fossil fuels and uh, making deals with Russian oligarchs they actually helped to sustain this illusion of authoritarian prosperity that uh, Putin was projecting. We've run out of time, but I hope you'll come back and, and talk with us again. A very, very interesting perspective. And obviously, you have extensive knowledge of the history of this part of the world. Uh, doctor, thank you so much. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Dr. Andriy Zayarnyuk is professor of history at the University of Winnipeg, teaches about Ukraine, the former Soviet Union, nationalism, a scholarly gentleman to be sure. Well, thank you very much once again for spending the hour with me. Tomorrow, Bob Komsik will be here to take your calls on Free For All Friday, and I hope you'll join me on the weekend for the best of Fight Back, Saturday and Sunday at 12.30. Be well. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.